Hello and welcome to Bringing Design Closer. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. This is HCD is almost five years old. I can't believe it. We've been creating content regularly for that period of time. And if you want to help us out, please leave a review for us wherever you're listening. Any of those Spotify's or Google apps, whatever you're using. Those lovely algorithms really love reviews and it helps us grow our community and every little helps. But if you don't want to leave a review, I completely understand that. You can go one better by just telling people that you work with about the This Is Hate City podcast. Now in this episode, I speak with Michael Kalinsky, a movie director, documentary maker and musician based in North Carolina in the United States. Now for anyone that follows me on Twitter, they might have seen a thread a number of weeks ago where I spoke about my own back pain. And late last year, I woke up with pain on my left-hand side of my back and contributed to, you know, being a dad, lifting little people and being out of shape, sitting down for larger periods of time, etc. during the pandemic. And I went to my physio and had several sessions before Christmas to little or no avail or no state change anyway. Christmas was a pretty sore period for me. Uh, I was more grumpy than usual and entered January and had a private MRI scan. And that in itself was an interesting experience, folks, and one that I'll go for, go forward in another episode and I'll talk about that. But my GP called me and said that one of my discs is protruding and it's probably sitting on a nerve. And I was really shocked. I'd heard about herniated discs over the years, but now I had one. I actually got stiffer after that for a few weeks and I didn't know what to do. I'd been to the physio, I'd been to the doctors and the doctors had given me painkillers. So was this is what life was going to be like for me? Is this what middle age feels like? And if it was, then this wasn't too much fun. And it was at that point that I tweeted, okay? And what came back was a lot of support and advice. And Emma Blomkamp read this and had already read something in a newsletter by Kai Brack, someone I hold in the highest regard. Um, he created a wonderful magazine called Offscreen um, that I was a subscriber to for a very long time. But anyway, Kai Brack came back to me and he'd written something several months prior in his newsletter and tagged Kai. And then Kai mentioned Dr. John Sarno in the United States. And he encouraged me to Google Dr. John Sarno and watch some of his stuff. Now, Sarno's work states that many people have herniated discs, but what is the cause for lots of back pain is actually stress and hidden life traumas. Now, I was instantly sceptical, but I spent two hours that night watching lectures on Sarno in the New York University on YouTube, and I was shocked. Last year was actually quite brutal, running a business and balancing everything has been quite hard on me and my mental health. And maybe this is, there was something in this. Maybe there was something to do with Sarno's work and stress and the mind and the body connection. Then Michael tweeted to me and he'd created an awesome documentary called All the Rage several years ago and I bought it on iTunes and watched it. Now in that documentary it explores the relationship between the mind and the body and Sarno encourages people instantly to try and exercise and also try to explore your own triggers for stress and really watch out for those stressors in your day-to-day life and try and manage them and just be present. And I did exactly this. I went out and I cut the grass, went for a short walk with the kids, gave them piggybacks. And to my surprise, there was nothing. The pain had somewhat just kind of disappeared. And I was kind of like left in this state of what's going on here? Was this in my head? I stopped all the medication and I've been pretty much fine. Not ever since. I still have to uh, do lots of stretches and so forth, but I don't have that pain. Now, in this episode, I speak with Michael about working directly with Dr. Sarno in the creation of the documentary and explore deeper about the background to Michael's own journey with back pain, something that underpinned the narrative of the documentary itself. Look, this is a brilliant episode. I know it's a little bit of an unusual one, but it's one for all. And even if you don't suffer from back pain, I think you'll find this fascinating. So let's go. Michael, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? 
I am excellent. You're excellent. We, we've been chatting for, for quite a while about a bit about everything, but um, maybe just start off and we'll, we'll, we'll kick off and tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I am a musician, photographer, filmmaker, artist. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, as I say it, one of the things that um, we do, my wife and I especially, is we make a lot of movies together. Um, but, you know, the movie we're here to talk about is one about Dr. Sarno. And it starts with this mm -hmm. line um, that the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves shape our sense of who we are. And for a long time, uh, part of my story was that I didn't believe I could be an artist because <clears throat> I didn't think I had the kind of explosive creativity that it took to be an artist. So I had this story in my head about what an artist was. And it took me probably 20 years. And so after college, I was in a band. I was a photographer. I worked crappy jobs. Um, and then I started making movies. But, but even then, it, it took another 15 years before I could say I'm an artist without feeling like an imposter. And in fact, even as I just said it, I still feel a bit like an imposter. And so it's really interesting how, you know, these ideas that we form about how things are supposed to be interact with our ideas about who we are and who we should be and how those... Mm. That's kind um, of what we're going to be yeah. focusing on a little bit more in this conversation because yeah. um, how, how we've connected online was down to a tweet that I put out uh, a number of weeks ago about having back... Uh, having back pain okay um it it fluctuates from time to time but it happened last december towards the end of a very punishing year um you know we're in a pandemic and so forth but you kindly tweeted about a documentary about dr john sarno and i was somewhat cynical you know when i when i heard about you know uh -huh. sarno's work and then i just started to just pique my curiosity and you know i watched a couple of documentary or, or, or lectures actually in new york and then you tweeted and i bought the documentary and i can honestly say it's it's changed my life um and i've referred to your documentary i've referred people to it you know probably every couple of days i'm like you need to buy this documentary you need to buy this 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 is amazing this this stuff and i'm not just saying that because you're sitting in front of me here but um it's called all the rage okay and um, my first question for you is why the word rage in the in the title well, one of the things that's central to Dr. Sarno's idea um, of, you know, he calls a mind-body problem, is that um, a lot of things that shape our our way of being in the world are formed when we're young, sometimes even before we're conscious of mm -hmm. how that's happening. So if you have a lot of um, even minor traumas in childhood, like your needs are not met, I think, you know, a lot of this story is related to trauma. And when we hear the word trauma... Mm -hmm. Again, we tell a story about what that is. And so I think when we think of trauma, we think of being in war or being violently abused or being sexually abused. But in fact, mm. when we're kind of really pre-conscious, simply not having our most core needs met is traumatic. It's traumatizing. And it forces us to redirect our behaviors. So, for instance, if um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, you think about there's a guy named Gabor Mate who uh, wrote a book called yeah. uh, When the Body Says No. And he yeah. now has a movie called The Wisdom of Trauma, and it's really having a huge impact. But he talks about his own experience of um, coming to understand this really profound connection because he, he says actually he had um, arthroscopic uh, surgery on his knee one day. But then he went to visit his mother, 
And he hid the fact that he was limping from her. And afterwards, he was like, why did I do that? Oh, because he had to be so much more conscious of her needs than his own, because he grew up post-Holocaust with a mother who was completely traumatized and barely able to meet his needs. So in order to get his needs met, he couldn't cause any problems. And he came to understand how this affected mm. who he was. And I would say that probably is a similar thing to me. Like, we're wonderful people. Um, mm -hmm. they, they grew up in situations where they were not well-parented. And they didn't have, e even though they wanted to be wonderful parents, they didn't have all the emotional skills that they probably needed. And so we were left wanting in many ways. Or the expectations for us were way beyond the capacity of what we could deliver. So there's a lot of these mm. things that shape our sense of who we are and affect us. And, and part of that mm. is that we have to learn, we have to suppress our own powerful emotions, otherwise we get in trouble. And so all the rage refers to the fact that we all have kind of bottled up rage in us. And it's the repression of that rage, which causes imbalances in our body, right? Like it's, it's our brain trying to protect us so it keeps us from expressing that rage, but we need to express that rage or we need to be able to express what we truly feel. Otherwise, that repression puts us in a, in a space essentially of anxiety or panic, which then affects our physical body. And when that becomes so regularized okay. that we're not aware of it, then it really <laughs> has a major impact on us. <clears throat> And I know I kind of so, wove all over the place. I'm sorry that it's a little confusing. But no, but to no, be no, clear, no, it's it's. I'll go, I'll go back to this idea of communication. But our first title for the film was the story of pain, because everybody's pain has a story, right? Like if you if you mm. really think about your back pain, what's the story behind that pain? Well, like you said, it was a brutal year, right? So what mm. what about that brutal year led to this position where all of a sudden that rage was being internalized and you were. You had no, no way to deal with it. You maybe had to get out of a relationship or you had to escape from something and you couldn't. And so it goes in, inwards. But we found that the story of pain was a very, it's a negative story. But all the rage is both mm. positive and negative, right? All the rage means something yeah. that's really popular. And so it, 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 it's kind of a, a pun on that. Yeah. It's funny though, but the word rage, you know, all the rage, it's, it's amazing. Like it's very popular at the moment, but the word rage... Yeah for me, um, is associated with anger and it's, you know, if someone has rage, they're in a, in a, in a fit of anger. Like it's, it's an, a really an explosive emotion. Um, right. but what which I'm seeing is and reading an awful lot of, which makes it scary. Exactly. But an awful lot of people kind of like, they would deny that the rage persists in their life. And they kind of like, they, they shirk away from it and they hide and they, they, they don't acknowledge its presence. Whereas what I'm seeing in a lot of Sarno's, uh, the readings that I'm, I'm going through at the moment, it doesn't have to be what we would consider typically rage. It can be bubbling frustrations that kind of aren't dealt with over, over a period of time. And that can lead itself to a disconnect between the mind and the body. And the bit that I'm, I'm going to ask you next is, so the, 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 the historical story of, of medicine and um, the development of penicillin, you, you articulated that really nicely. And where we're currently at in the, in the kind of the medical evolution of how a pill will solve the problem. Tell me a little bit more around um, how you see, you know, from the, the development of penicillin to, the, you know, Freud and, and that narrative. Maybe replay that for, for the listeners, if you can. Sure. 
I mean, I think a lot of this goes back to Descartes. And um, there was a period of time where the church said, listen, <clears throat> you can have the body, but we're having the mind. And if you want to talk about the mind, we'll take your head. And so, because he was, he was trying to kind of bridge that gap and had to stop. And so for a really long time, mm. um, there was this kind of separation about the mind and, and the spiritual matters. Freud brought that back into vogue. And mm. then it became kind of a, a, a good mixture of being aware of what was going on emotionally, understanding the kind of idea of somatic issues where stresses would have physical manifestations. And there was Hans Selye who was also dealing with a lot of that. And, and what happened was there was a lot of good cross-pollination. The psychiatrists, psychologists were dealing with medical people and they were finding ways of, oh, this makes sense. But then with the kind of after World War II, there was a hyper um, scientific approach to medicine. And, and what they did is said, we're going to do these randomized controlled trials. But it kind of did what the church did, right? In the randomized controlled trials, anything emotional was confusing because people were going to bring their own different confusing emotions to it. So it made your data unclear. So what they said is essentially, mm. we're just going to ignore emotional factors because they confuse the data. And then that just became accepted as a way to look at data. Mm. And so all of the emotional factors, there was, you know, it's messy. How do you control for, you know, someone's mood one day? How do you control for this? How do you control for their upbringing? Mm. We just have to look at large data populations and see what a drug does for them. But that's kind of like saying, you know, I'm going to work on a car and I'm only going to work on the engine systems, but not the fluid systems because the fluid systems are complex and I, you know, I just can't deal with that. But if you don't have the fluid systems, the engine doesn't work. And it's the same if you're looking at the <clears throat> as the body as just a physical being and not understand the impact that the emotions have in the body, even though we have clear evidence, like you blush, right? Yeah. That's an, a physical and emotional interaction, right? We know that, yeah. but you know, we get sweaty palms if we're nervous. Physical things happen, yet we've ignored that impact because we're saying, oh, that's temporary. But in fact, when those things become semi-permanent, like a good example is understanding that the amygdala, which is your fighter flight part of the brain doesn't always connect yeah. to your intellectual part of the brain, right? So it acts automatically, but, but it will check in with the brain. And this is where we have a lot more power than we realize. So say you um, step off a curb and almost get hit by a bus. Your fight or flight will kick in and throw you back on the curb. At that point, thinking brain, your frontal cortex doesn't say to your amygdala, boy, I was stupid. I wasn't paying attention. That's what I need to pay attention to. Your amygdala sees a bus and says, those motherfuckers are scary. We need to be aware of them. So now every time you see mm -hmm. a bus, your body is trying to protect you without you even being conscious of it. And you get flooded with stress hormones and you don't even know why. So a lot of times anxiety, you're like, I feel anxious and I don't even know why. And I remember being in college and waking up almost every morning feeling really anxious, but not even actually having the word anxiety, not even having a way to frame it. And I would think, what's going on? What's bothering me? And I'd be like, oh, I have this test. You know, I'd start to think about all these physical, like, um, not physical, but these structural things that were going on in my life that I had to worry about. Otherwise, I might miss them. I miss but that process actually made me so disconnected that I was more likely to miss them because I was less grounded. And so you get into this feedback loop of feeling anxious, trying to address it, rather than addressing that you don't actually have to be anxious, right? So you get further and further into that. So anxiety is, in a way, a kind of form of rage, if you think about it. Like rage at having to be responsible for all of these worldly Absolutely. things. 
Yeah. Um, you have to interrupt. And I think I can, I in the, the world, <laughs> no, no, it's brilliant. Like I'm, 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 I'm enjoying everything. Um, I think the world that we find ourselves in at the moment where most people are kind of either working, um, you know, from home or and there's all these extra anxieties that are persisting in the world, you know, people are much more stressed. I, I could probably speculate and say here that back pain is probably on the increase. Um, but typically, whenever I went to my my doctor and I went to my physiotherapist, uh, and then they they encouraged me to get an MRI scan, um, which I'd never done before, which is quite scary and nerve wracking for you know a forty two year old man. And they came back and they go, oh yeah, there's a, it looks like there's a herniated disc and it's sitting on on the nerve. And I was like, no way, I've got a herniated disc. I I couldn't believe it. I was like, okay, cool. Yet I was able to wake up in the morning and I felt completely free of pain. And I was like, hang on a second, something's not stacking up here. Towards right, right. three, four, five o'clock at the end of every day, I was getting sore. And, you know, that's the bit that can it kind of made me curious about something else that could possibly yeah. be causing this. And when I saw the, the statistic that Sarno did in the 70s, where he did a, a study of MRI scans with maybe, I don't know, it was maybe 150 people. And he saw that only 20% of people um, had what would be considered normal spine um, configuration. And they did it again. I, I'm probably getting the facts figures wrong here, so feel free to correct me. But they did it yeah, again. No, and they the saw there was 11%. Idea. Yeah, well, but I don't know if he was running those studies or pointing to them, but there, I mean, there was this whole series right when we started making the movie in 2004, a woman named Gina Collada wrote an article about, oh, there's this big study of MRIs and there's actually no real hmm. strong correlation between what people see on the, um, on the MRI and the back pain. So they would, they'd put 3000 people in a, um, in an MRI and they gave it to the radiologist and said, tell us who have pain. And and so if you if you think about that, what it goes to is another story that we tell ourselves. If we see something, we believe it. But nobody had ever done a study like that. So there's such a strong correlation between seeing something and saying, aha, I have the answer. So we have this MRI. We look at it and we go, oh, you have pain there. And that must be the cause of your pain. But they didn't hmm. do MRIs on people who didn't have pain to see if that was the case as well. And it was. So you have this equal number of people who have terrible looking MRIs and no pain as people who have beautiful MRIs and profound pain. So what we know mm. from a scientific perspective is that we now know there's no causal correlation between what we see on the MRI and the back pain. Mm. Now, what she wrote in 2004, you know, she said, oh, so now they're going to change process. 2006, she wrote another one, a bigger study, still not changing process. 2008, same thing. These studies are being done, 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 done. And instead of it affecting the care, MRIs are becoming more used, more expensive, and more impactful. It hasn't changed practice. So we're talking about medicine as this very scientific process, but if things come up that don't fit within the systemic approach or idea, it's just completely ignored, which is absurd. Yeah, they discount it. So in that instance where I, I mean, again, I'm weaving my story and your story together here because we, we have a similar story where you are lucky enough to get to meet Dr. Johnson and work with him and look like from the documentary, build up a, a very good relationship with the man. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But what blew me away was his prescription wasn't a pill. It was knowledge. And 
I want to ask you more what it was like when you went into Dr. John Sarner for the first time and he said that to you. You probably knew because I know your dad had gone through uh, Sarno before. Right. And and so my dad, Go when ahead. I was young, first he almost had, uh, he almost died of an ulcer when I was in like second grade. And shortly after that, he got whiplash in a car accident that we were all in that was like literally five miles an hour. And it persisted for years and years and years. But my dad was a psychologist and a friend of his in the early 80s, this is years of him being in pain, gave him the book and immediately mm. as a psychologist, he got it and he got better. And, and my dad was about the cheapest person you could ever meet. I mean, he grew up in the depression with a lot of trauma. And even though yeah. he, you know, got a, had a comfortable life, he was like, we were never allowed to have a soda growing up at a restaurant, not because they were bad for you, but no way am I paying a dollar for something that costs them 10 seconds, 10 cents. No way. It's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, uh, 10 cents of soda. So, you know, that's just how firm he was. Yet he bought a case of the book. And gave it out to everybody who ever complained of pain. Like it was just so profound to him that he had to address it. And so uh, when a few years later, my brother had terrible hand pain and almost had to drop out of college and was told he had to have surgery to carve away bone in his neck to free up his collarbone, to, to, to free the nerves in his neck. My dad said, listen, I'm not going to talk to you again unless you go see Dr. Sarno. And this had gone on for four years with my brother. He went and saw him three mm -hmm. weeks later. He called me and said, I want my car back. He couldn't drive, so he'd given me his car completely better. So I read the book at that, that point and, and my back would go out two or three times a year for a day or two. Yeah. It wasn't like a persistent yeah. problem, but you know, I'd have a, I read the book. I didn't, didn't happen for 10 years. It totally made mm -hmm. sense. I saw myself on every page, but then I had a house I was trying to fix up and a second house and uh, a child movie. and tons of stress. And it just crushed me. I just overwhelmed myself and I, I went and I had my MRI and I was told all these terrible things. And even when it was getting bad, I was reading the book, reading the book. I, I was just too disconnected emotionally to get there. And um, that's when I, my wife literally carried me into his office. And, you know, I was broke. I was like, I can't afford him. My brother said, I'll pay for it. So I, I went to see him and, and it wasn't miraculous, but it put me on the path because I hmm. already understood it. But his absolute clarity in 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 what it was helped me to to slowly do the work and and I got eighty percent better um, than it happened and it, and we that's when we started making a documentary about him. Now getting to to the idea of being close to him, I, I got to to know him a little bit. But the truth is, one of the reasons we ended up making a very personal documentary is we made documentaries that were people about people who are fighting something. But he wasn't really willing to mm -hmm. publicly fight. He had a book come out. He didn't do any public events. There was nothing for us to film. He wouldn't introduce us to patients. We didn't know how to make it. And that's what stopped it. So when I hit the floor the second time, I literally screamed, grab the fucking camera, because I realized this is the way we were going to make it, that I would have to be in it. And yeah, it was, I your be, it was your narrative. I had to, I had to make that story a part of it because I understood in order to connect emotionally to the story, I had to be emotional in it and he wasn't going to be that person. So that was part of the problem with yeah. making it. He had a very compelling story. He, he wouldn't let it really be his story. You know, I think Which there I was times I, in the documentary know, where difficult and dangerous thing. <clears throat> yeah. But there was definitely times in the documentary where I've, I, I sensed that he could have been emotional at times, especially when he was leaving his office and he was, he was resigned. Someone gave him the gift um, I think he, real, he he probably deeply realized how much his work meant to to so many people. Oh yeah. Um, did he ever just 
did he ever discuss like um you know what 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 i know i think it was wife discussed it a little bit more like the the sense of being um discredited or not being um listened to from from his community his peers did you ever get a sense of like what impact that had on his life oh it was very hard i'm sure and in fact you know just like my father when he left his job he really i mean i think it was weeks later he was in the hospital for a very long time you know when you lose that sense of who you are and how so he at least had that and then when that's taken away from you it's very difficult i mean i think about that a lot right now like i want to live my life differently than my father. I want to continue to do this work and to go deeper into it because I feel like, you know, that's my job and it's my job for my children. Like, you know, when you heal yourself, you heal your children and it's very hard to heal ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, but when you give them that example um, of, of moving further or not being perfect and recognizing that and working on that and owning that, um, that's helpful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's something that I, I could see carrying through in the movie. Like, you know, if, if you're okay with it, Michael, I'd like to talk a little bit more around um, healing yourself. Okay. So in terms of the methods that are used, because I believe a lot of people will listen to the podcast. They might see some sort of symmetry in, in what we're talking about here. They, they may see um, themselves in, in our story here as well. What does that look like for you? Because I know both of us at the moment have got intermittent pain um, and it's it's usually for me at the end of a hard week. But h- how do you manage it? You know, I recognize that one of the th- so what Doctor Sarno talked a lot about was this idea of the patients that he saw. He realized that they were perfectionists, they were goodest, they really so constantly and consistently tried to do for others and had this kind of drive to be good mm. caretaking people. And when he realized that some of that was out of balance, sometimes we crush our own needs for trauma. I saw something the other day is like, are you really easygoing or is this, you just never had your needs met and that's a trauma response. And that was, that Mm -hmm. really hit me because I was like, Oh yeah. You know, as much as um, I, I do that work to recognize what's going on myself and, and learn to take care of what I need. It's deeply embedded that that's not the way to live, right? That you're, you have to deal with other people's needs and take care of them in, in a way that like, you know, my parents had their own issues. And so there was a lot of screaming. They fought a lot. And a lot of times we just had to kind of just, you know, recognize that they couldn't be there for us. And so we had to be there for them in some ways. And that's not, it wouldn't be this like clear automatonic Mm. way, but these things get deeply embedded in who we are. And so I found myself in relationships a lot where Mm. I'm doing way too much um, and the relationship's out of balance. And so I'm learning how to kind of not confront it, but address it. And sometimes you just have to let relationships go if they really, something too much is being asked of you and you realize, okay, this is out of balance and you're not willing to work with me to bring it into balance I'm going to have to leave that. And and it's interesting. I'm I'm working on this project now about um, a baseball team. And one of the coaches, you know, kept saying to me, always be seven seconds from walking away from any relationship. And what he, what he meant not was not, not don't commit, but recognize when there's a breach and that breach isn't curable and be ready to go. Because if not, you're going to stay and you're going to keep trying to make it work, but you're only going to wind yourself further into it. And it's really good advice. Hmm. It doesn't mean, um, be thoughtless. It means be thoughtful of what the situation is. So just going back to your parents, um, you know, being seven seconds, 
we'll come back to that in a second. But with your parents' scenario, you mentioned there that your your mother was a social worker and mm-hmm. your father was a psychologist. So there's right. probably um, a large amount of a trauma, trauma awareness, I guess, amongst the, the two parents. What did they right. teach you um, about trauma as you were growing up? I don't think we ever talked about trauma, but I did. Discussed I think it. They, they taught me to be thoughtful of what other people need. Now, at the same time, mm. they maybe weren't as thoughtful of what we needed. And so there was a lot of confusion yeah. there. And so, for instance, like, I think a lot of people who go into psychology or go into social work um, do so because they have that deep need to take care of others, which is also mm. oftentimes out of balance, right? It comes from a, growing up in a place of trauma and wanting to help others heal. But a lot of times psychiatrists or psychologists, I found aren't really dealing with their own stuff. And in fact, mm. it kind of protects them from having to deal with it because they understand what's going on and they can help others, but they often don't look inward. And so the hard work, the hardest work is to actually deal with your own stuff because then you're really much more capable yeah. of helping other people work through theirs. Uh, and so that's kind of the work that, you know, is really is the most difficult and it's ongoing. And, you know, as much as, you know, like one of the first questions I get asked at almost every screening is, well, how's your back now? And, you know, are, are, are you cured? And I, and I often respond, you know, I've got this terrible disease. It's called being alive and there's no cure for it. And eventually it's going to catch up to us. And, yeah. and it is, it, you know, being alive is both a gift and a burden. And so how, mm. do, you, how do you embrace the gifts of it and, and put down the burden as much as possible while still being conscious of everybody's needs around you, but also your own and finding that balanced place? It's very difficult. And we often find ourselves falling back into those same patterns. And as I was just telling you, you know, I was just on a really, really arduous and overwhelming shoot for six weeks. And, uh, you know, it's not that I so much fell back into those patterns, but there were times where I just had to, in order to keep the project alive, I had to just work beyond my capacity. And, And it caught up with me, but I also made sure I was taking care of myself. So it didn't crush me, but it was, you know, I'm still recovering from it. Was there any, um, sort of recommendations from Sarno as regards um, exploring psychology and exploring um, remedial fitness to to help with the body. I didn't understand the, the connection in the documentary, if that was suggested. I know there was times where you, you, uh, you know, opened up because it was, it's, you know, you spoke about your trauma with your dad passing, but is that something that Sarno would have uh, actively encouraged you to explore? Yeah, I think he one of the first things he said is start journaling, start writing, because then things come up and just, you know, it's not easy. A lot of people sit down and they have nothing to write. But over time, you just start writing, Mm. you start writing whatever comes to your mind, even if it's like, I have to walk the dog, I have to walk. Whatever it is, you just start writing and you start to connect with what you're feeling and thinking. And, you know, like you were we were talking earlier, you said a lot of people are like, well, I don't have any rage. Well, you know, as Dr. Mate would say that the people who feel like they had a perfect childhood are the people who absolutely didn't because nobody had a perfect childhood. And if you feel like you had a perfect childhood, that meant there yeah. was probably a profound amount of repression there. Maybe there wasn't a lot of screaming and yelling, but there was a lot of not dealing with stuff. That's, that's clear. And so when we, when we try to think, okay, my, my childhood was perfect, then we, we really probably are not being honest with ourselves. Now it's, it's fine to honor yeah. The fact that your parents worked really hard and they did really well and they were really sweet and they really supported you. 
there's stuff going on. And if you don't explore it, you're not going to understand it. So he definitely, I think that's a really looking inward. He prescribed looking inward and, you know, early on, he said only, you know, five or 10% of people need therapy. He, he, he definitely pushed that upwards. You know, we all are going to benefit from having someone to talk to, to work through things. Do we all absolutely need it to be able to survive day to day? No. Um, Will it help all of us mm-hmm. if we're open to it? Absolutely. There, there's no way that not having mm-hmm. someone to talk to won't help us. Um, uh, but are we also taught that we're weak if we need it? Yes, that's a problem. You know, we're we're told that yeah. we're weak if we if we if our emotions overwhelm us. Can we get a sick day if we can't get out of bed because our back hurts? Yes. Can we get a sick day if we say I feel a little depressed? No, we can't. So where do, where, where do we place our yeah. value? So our thoughts are going to go to, okay, it's safe to have a bad back. It's not safe to be an emotional wreck. And so safety becomes yeah. a big part of this. And so just understanding these things gives us agency. It doesn't solve the problem immediately, but as soon as we can open up to the agency of it, we have more possibility of, of healing ourselves. It's, it's, it's a really nice way to start bringing the conversation down towards an end. And it's something that I've started to re-explore. I, I explored that before I became a father. I was like, okay, well, I want to make sure that I, I deal with some of the stuff that was probably in my past um, before I started to look at how that might cascade intergenerationally. So it, it's, it's been f- fascinating speaking to you about this stuff. We mentioned there about another project that I want to try and weave the conversation into, Michael, beforehand. You're working on what just blew my mind, uh, this story, before we start recording. Tell us a little bit more around the, the documentary you're working on at the moment. Well, I've been working on it as long as I've been working on the Sarno film, really. But um, when I had children, you know, this idea of nature versus nurture um, – I mm. thought it was all nurture because we grew up in a time when everything was nurture, which was also really confusing, right? Because I grew up in an era of nurture uh, and my parents weren't the best nurturers, even though they were a psychologist, a social worker. I think they cared deeply about us and wanted us to have a wonderful life, but maybe they weren't so responsible about their own behaviors and often expressed a lot of rage and screamed at us and stuff like that without understanding how mm. traumatizing that can be. Um but as I was thinking about all of that stuff, I had two children and they came mm-hmm. out and they were extremely different. And, you know, I want to go back to that idea. <laughs> when my child was young, I kept a journal for her, my first child. She was very difficult. And I, I wrote about a lot of those difficulties so that later she could go back and so have some understanding of how that might have affected who she, came, who she became. Because she had a lot of difficulties in daycare. She was always extreme in her way of being. And so I wanted her to be able to connect mm. to that. But in any case, when I had the second one, um, nice. a woman on, in, the, in the hair salon on the corner said to me, you know, you got to go for your boy because I had two girls. And I was like, oh, hell no, I am done because I was overwhelmed at the moment. And then I went, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. I might have a boy because I had been a sperm donor. And I hadn't really thought about it. And when right. I did it, I was only thinking it's nurture, nurture, nurture. I didn't really think I would be, feel any connection. It was just some genetic material. I grew up in an era where there were a lot of stories about um, – people looking for their adoptive mother. You never saw an after-school special about looking for an, you know, a father because there's yeah. this idea of the nurturing that took place when you are growing the child creates that connection. But in fact, the genes are so profound. Um, you know, you later discover how profound. Anyway, um, I started working on a documentary about that idea. And then uh, about 12 or 13 years later, 
well after finishing the Dr. Sarno movie, I, I got a text from my cousin saying, while I was in the emergency room with my mom, who I thought was going to pass, saying, um, I just got off the phone with your daughter. Um, do you remember you were a sperm donor? And I did. And I, Whoa. you know, immediately texted the, my daughter and said, I would love to speak with you, but now's not a good time. And one thing to know is I'd spent so long on this. I understood that what I needed in that moment or my desire to know her had to be not even the back seat. It wasn't even in the car. I understood I had a responsibility to her <clears throat> to make space for her to mm -hmm. enter that relationship in the way that she needed. I was there to give her what she needed, but I had no expectations. I wasn't allowed to have any expectations because I was, I was the responsible party. And so that allowed us to slowly mm. um, create a really profound relationship. You know, it took a year and we, we talked mm. a lot. We got to know each other, but I really had to be like, as much as I wanted her to meet my mom, because it was her grandmother, I knew I couldn't push into that mm. space. And she wasn't ready for that yet. She, she did miss that opportunity. So, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, how old is your, your daughter now? She's 29. And, 29. And, you know, she grew up in a family where nobody went to college, but when I met her, she was getting her PhD and both of my parents did. So wow. having that connection to that story and knowing more about her was so profound and so grounding because when we're not connected, you know, like there's a lot of times, you know, th this is one of the major problems with the donor conception is oftentimes kids weren't even told. And it's the same with adoption. Sometimes kids aren't even told. But there's a knowing. You know who you're connected to. Yeah. And if you're kind of being gaslit and told, no, no, this is your dad, you it's really discon it, it's disconcerting. It it makes you just feel lost in the world. And so a lot of times it's really about <coughs> honesty, it's about connection, and it's about making space and and giving some agency to people. And and we knew this with, with so this is the one of the main problems with donor consumption. We knew this from adoption. All adoption by the time they were doing donor conception was we knew that it had to be known because to keep the secrets were terrible. And yet we just, you know, as a business didn't do that with these children. So in the, the, the sort of the, the broader scheme of where you're at with the, the documentary, where are you at with that? Cause it's, it's, it sounds like it's a great story. Um, it's a very personal story as well. I'm sure for Holly. Yeah. It's a resource problem. We, you know, is so much footage. There's so much story and, you know, we, what we really need to do is put together a really good trailer and be able to sell it. I, I, we can't spend, yeah. I don't have the resources to spend two years on it, which is what it'll take. So yeah. I need to find someone who will help us finish it. Um, and, yeah. and I think wow. we can, we just need to do it. But at one point, actually, yeah. I was trying but to if... merge the two documentaries because they're so connected. They're both nature versus nurture. And, and, the, and the fact is what happens with systems is we're constantly going in and out of balance. And, and it's the same with financial systems as well. One of the most interesting things we noticed when we looked at the documentary, was we started making this documentary, is the first time they started um, looking at back pain, the cost was like $56 billion. And that was in the mid-80s. That's when they first like wow. measured the cost of back pain, right? Um, it's also when there was a real regressive um, tax issue that happened under Reagan in America. And, and I think it happened in you know, around the world. And it's where we started to see a huge rise in the wealth gap. And so if you look at the wealth mm -hmm. gap on a chart with um, the rise in back pain, they rose exponentially together. So in 85, it was $56 billion, right, in back pain. And the wealth gap was fairly low. 
you know, it was like, you know, there was a mm. a 10% gap or whatever. If you put it on a chart yeah. by the time we, when they re when they re crunched those numbers in 2011, it was 200 billion. And in wow. um, 2016, it was 500 billion, you know? So you look at the numbers What's on the rise, the it's parabolic. And, and if you look at that, you know, if you tell the story of it, right, in America from the mm. 50s, there was this increasing level of a, a rising middle class, right? Um, but when that started to shift, that's when the back pain really started to take off. And you think about people who, there was this expectation, the story is, we're going to do better than our parents. But that actually became impossible for most people. So there's a sense that you're not mm. doing well enough. So you may have what you need to eat. You may have a car but it's not enough because you're not doing better. You feel like you're failing. And if you feel like you're failing, you've got this pressure to yeah. succeed. Yeah. It's rage inducing. And um and it's stressful. It's a s systemic and it actually perpetuates an awful lot of the the stuff that Sarna talks about where it creates an additional stress and anxiety and we're where we're kind of going going around in circles, which is um, right, but it's also systems which is, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's systems out of balance, right? So at a certain point, there was a kind of a, an understanding of the mind-body, which is where we're getting to. We're we're moving very rapidly to an yeah. understanding that mind and the body are interacting. To that. It's very likely that we'll go out of balance the other way and we'll dismiss science. You know, that's what's going on. So the problem is not yeah. that science can't figure this out, but the randomized controlled trial that doesn't accept the emotions or doesn't deal with them isn't going to do it. And that's changing. There's trials that are being done that are including emotional aspects and they're, they're having profound results. There was, um, you can look it up on the Washington post, but there was a recent study that was done by people who followed Dr. Sarno's work and they used, they did work, they did the process, but they also used an fMRI machine to statistically look about what was going on in the brain and you see brain changes. So that starts to convince people that this emotional oh. awareness work actually affects the physical brain. And so now they're accepting it. But if they don't see it, they call it woo, Whoa. right? It's woo. It's unscientific if you can't prove it. But if you're not asking the questions or doing the science to prove it and then calling it all woo, frankly, you're an asshole, un unfortunately. If you just say it's not true and it can't be true because the science hasn't been done and the science shouldn't be done because it's woo, like shut up, right? Yeah. Like it's fine for you not to believe yeah. it because you haven't seen it. But one of the things that happened when we were making the movie is there is a lot of science to support these ideas, but we would put a lot of the science in the hmm. movie. And what we found was all the skeptics said, yeah, well, I need more science. I need more science because they were so preternaturally resistant to facts yeah. that were counterintuitive to what they knew to be true. It just made them more skeptical. So that's when we ended up having to take all of yeah. that out. And that made some people more skeptical of the film, but we weren't going to actually reach them anyway. So you stop talking to the people you're not going to reach. Seven seconds from walking away. Well, Michael, seven. I was going to say seven seconds from walking away, but it's um, it's it's a fantastic documentary, and, and I'm not here to blow smoke. Um, everyone I've I've met who asks me like, "How's your back?" and I'm like, "Well, do you know what? It's eighty percent or ninety percent better than it was in January." Um, and I put it down to initially finding the lectures and the books. But also it's it's your movie that I find really accessible and for people to get and to watch. So if you do know anyone out there who's got back pain, folks, All The Rage. What's the, the URL for it, it's Michael? AllTheRageDoc.com. And that has links yeah. to all the different ways you can watch it. I do want to actually address really briefly the one thing you just said. Um, 
that this is a really, you know, this is the most important aspect of the movie is that, um, you know, this is a mm. story about connecting with our emotions, right? So you can see the lecture, yeah. but it doesn't connect you with your emotions. Maybe you see the lecture and some people talk about yeah. their own experience that starts to connect you with your emotions. But the reason I ended up having to be in it and feeling responsible in some, in some way, the same way that I felt with my daughters, I had to be emotionally responsible and emotionally present and essentially emotionally naked in order to help people to connect to their own emotions. And um, it's interesting, like yeah. so many times after the movie, when I would present it live, people would come up to me and I could literally feel the emotion had come up. It was in their chest and they would, they would want to talk and, and I would just interrupt them. They were kind of asking questions. I'd say, you know, I'm aware of that feeling that you have in your chest. Are you aware of it? And it would move up and then they would either cry or they would sigh, but it, it, it was so uncomfortable and they didn't know what to do with it, but just acknowledging it help them to just let it go. Yeah. And so the whole point of the film is to kind of help people to, to feel it. So the film, if you watch it, it's not going to prove shit to you. It's not going to tell you how to mm. solve this problem, but it's going to help you go, oh yeah, those emotions are there. That's, that was the main goal of it. I just identifying them. Yeah. And acknowledging them and being present enough to, to, to be aware is probably what I took away from it. So kudos to you um i'll put a link to the, the documentary in, in the show notes of the podcast michael if people want to reach out to you um if people want to follow you online what's the best way for people to do that uh well i'm online as myself uh, on facebook i'm on twitter as myself but also as um at story of pain rumor. at the story of pain there's also rumor yeah. and we have a facebook page um for the movie, which has tons of stuff on there is, is a real good source of information. Um, also for people who are interested, there's a bunch of TMS, uh, groups online that are really helpful to people to, mm. to get in a community of people who understand what this is and be able to kind of steer people in the right direction. And there's also the TMS wiki okay. has links to a lot of people who do this work. Like there's people in, in the UK, um, there's a lot of groups and there's a lot of, you know, therapists who are embracing this idea and I think really what it is, is just recognizing that that all therapy should be kind of mind-body focused. What's going on in your body Absolutely. is something we want to recognize. We want to be aware of what's going on somatically in order to be able to connect it what's going on intellectually and emotionally. Michael, thank you so much for your, giving me your time, your energy, and your story. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. Yeah, thank you. I've enjoyed it too. And, um, you know, lastly... I, you brought up something because all these ideas connect, but I think one of the ways that um, medicine has been practiced for a long time is the doctor is the God, right? And, you know, it, it's, it is almost colonial yeah. in its way of being like, I'm going to come in as this pro from outside and be able to put you on the right path. But I think that the way we get closer to, to truth is, is we take away that godlike status and understand that we're all our own gods and we need to listen to each other and listen to ourselves. People with knowledge need to be less, uh, be more human in order to be able to actually be able to see what else is going on so that they, they open up to the possibilities themselves. And, and, and it comes back to this idea of design, right? So if you come at design from, Oh, I know what design is and how it should be. It's, it's a less of a listening approach and really observing. And, and maybe we observe, but we also have to ask questions. Right. Like, oh, why did you go yeah. that way? Like, what made you feel that way? And, you know, 
everyone's going to bring different things to it. And so it's, it's really interesting to think if we can open up to emotional issues in every aspect from design to teaching, to, um, to medicine, you know, we're just going to have find more balance in our lives. Absolutely. Michael, that's a fantastic way to, to wrap the episode. Um, I'll, I'll put all those links to those things in the show notes as well. But thanks so much for your time again. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisis8cd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. Now, if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care. <laughs>